These are dark days for American public education. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on existing inequities in American schools and created some new ones. But a new book takes the long view and points to three bright spots amid the gloom. A growing number of high schools challenging students with advanced courses, charter school networks that are raising the bar for rigor in urban communities, and the persistence of the progressive tradition in classrooms around the nation. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Jay Matthews, longtime education columnist for the Washington Post and author of the new book, An Optimist's Guide to American Public Education. An excerpt from the book headlined, What I Learned in 23 Years Ranking America's Most Challenging High Schools, will appear in the summer 2021 issue of the journal and is available now at educationx.org. Jay, welcome to the Ednext Podcast. Hi, Marty. So this is a fascinating book, part memoir of your career as an education journalist and part celebration of the educators whose work you've reported on over the past 40 years. One of the many things I learned is that you weren't always an education reporter. You were a foreign correspondent in China, a national correspondent in California, a Wall Street correspondent in New York, all for the Washington Post. When you moved back to Washington at age 52 and asked your editor to cover education, you described that as requesting a demotion. Why? Well, um, newspapers, particularly big ones, self-important ones like mine, have a pecking order. Uh, It's never discussed, but you can sort of see it in the way of which stories we print more often and with greater play. I think it starts at the Washington Post with political coverage, very close to that is international coverage. Uh, Then we get to, um, you know, business, sports, entertainment, down below all those categories, which have great readers' interests is education. Um, I think there are a lot of readers who are interested in schools, and everybody's been to school, but we're sort of down the line. I had a classic Washington Post career. Uh, I was a very vicious young man. I spent a lot of time at the student newspaper at the university you're sitting in, and spent um, almost all my time. I didn't go to class very often. And that set me up nicely to go work for the Washington Post at age 26. And I started as a local reporter. I had already gotten a master's in East Asian studies, and I told everybody I want to be the post correspondent in China. And we need that kind of focus. And that's that's a classic Washington Post career. You start local, and then you go overseas, and then you come back and do something else. So I did local, then I did China for five years, and then I came back and was the West Coast bureau chief and a national reporter for 11 years. And while there, I met this teacher, Jaime Escalante. They've made a movie about him, Stand in the Liver, who changed my life. This guy was a, 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 a Bolivian teacher with a lot of um, great ideas, who was challenging kids in a low-income school in ways I'd never seen before. And I decided that's what I really want to do. They, they, I went, then went to New York to be a Wall Street correspondent. But after that ended... The natural thing we needed would be to go be a national uh, reporter, and I had done that before. I knew everybody. I, I often say I knew where all the um, bodies were buried. I knew everybody's first wife, so I had a great deal of influence in the newsroom. Um, but I told, I said to the managing editor, and then I said to the metro editor, I want to come back to be a local reporter again, as I was before. I know you have a national education reporter, but he or she doesn't really get to do a lot, and we often use the national education reporter to cover national disasters. I want to go into schools. I want to be in classrooms. I've learned, I've written two books now, and I see that's the way I want to cover schools. And the, the, 
then Metro editor of the Washington Post, Joanne Armeo, who's now the uh, an editorial writer who specializes in education, saw that and let me do it. And that was the beginning of a whole new phase for me. I got to go into schools as a local reporter, and I got to write more books about schools, and I'm very happy to have demoted myself in that way. Now, is the fact that this move that you made so obviously defied the career incentives that you faced, is that a problem for the state of education journalism? It seems to me that the term veteran education journalist is almost an oxymoron these days with many of the best education reporters at national publications quickly moving on to more prestigious beats. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, one of the standards moves when you're a young reporter. If you're a local, you start as local as I did. And I did cover schools in Arlington County and Alexandria for a while. Um, you, what you do is as a local reporter, you'll cover cops or schools or local politics. And if you, after you've done that for a while, you are, you've done the local schools, you're expected to go on to national reporting or overseas. Um, that's just the way we think about things. As I said, education is really toward the bottom of the pecking order, uh, and that's a problem. Um, if you have, there are some people like me who just fell in love with this stuff. Uh, there's a couple of reporters who were actually were teachers and are wonderful reporters now because of it. But we're pretty rare. Uh, usually, people, young reporters, follow the standard career path, and so we've got some really brilliant young people who are writing about education now, and there's some of them have stuck with it. Uh, Elizabeth Green at Chalkbeat is a great example of, of, of a brilliant reporter who had the same kind of uh, college newspaper experience I had, who's now running a great web uh, uh, system. Uh, but but the, 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 the bias in newsrooms, particularly in big newspapers like mine, is education is small potatoes. Well, your new book isn't about education journalism. It's really about education. And you highlight three major developments. Uh, mega trends, as it were, that leave you optimistic about where American schools are headed. The first and the development you're probably most closely associated with as a reporter is the growing number of high schools exposing students to college level coursework. Why is that topic so important to you? Why does it give you hope? Well, that, that's what I started with. I mean, I, Jaime Escalani was the one who showed me how much was going on in schools that could really change things. He had come into a school which was almost entirely low-income uh, Mexican kids and had uh, started an AP calculus class and got huge publicity because he was, his students were accusing of cheating on the AP test, which I discovered they actually did. <laughs> the first test, they were passing a note around toward the uh, answer, and I could tell from their answers that they had cheated. But before I found that out, five years later, they had got, taken a second AP exam with proctors watching their every move, and they had done just as well. They didn't have to cheat. They're really good. And how could a school like that produce kids that smart? And the lesson to me was, as I got around and saw more schools that were following that, is that we were overlooking the potential of many low-income kids, that we were assuming because their parents didn't go to college, uh, they couldn't go to college themselves, and they certainly couldn't handle AP courses. Uh, as, as time went on, and I wrote more about this, I realized that a great measure of a school is not, you know, test scores, because that's really a measure of, of how many of the parents went to college or have good jobs. The better measure was how hard the school was working to get kids to a place where they were challenging themselves with something like AP or International Baccalaureate. So I, in the course of um, 
of realizing that, writing lots of stories, I wrote a book about um, uh, class struggle, about um, good American schools. I started with Merrick High School up near in the New York suburbs. And what I found there was a great school with lots of kids from wealthy families, well-educated families, and they were keeping those kids out of the AP courses uh, because they didn't think they were ready for them. If they had, if they were a C or B student in their sophomore year, they couldn't take AP history. Uh, I had seen at Garfield High School where Jaime Escalante was, uh, Gar, uh, Jaime dragging kids into his math courses and then his AP courses, whose parents were day laborers. Uh, who had no money at all, and everybody assumed we were going to go off and be day laborers themselves. So clearly, if if some of our most favored public schools, like Mamaroneck High School, were telling kids, "Well, you're you're just not ready. Uh, you know, you're only a, a B minus student. You can't take AP." That's nuts. So I decided to do a to publicize this book. I decided to create this something called the Challenge Index, which measures schools based not on test scores, on any test scores, but measures schools on how many of their kids are allowed to get into AP or IB and participate and experience the depth and the challenge of that course and get ready for what is the most difficult exams given in high schools. And I've seen so many success from teachers who took low-income kids, as Jaime did, and put them through that routine. They were much better ready for college, even if they flunked the AP test, and they would have been if they'd been given the standard remedial program that kids like that get. Now, the Challenge Index has been incredibly popular with readers, with parents, but not everyone is a fan. Some critics just don't like the concept of ranking schools, but others have noted that schools can score well on the Challenge Index despite having very low proficiency rates on state tests or low and uneven graduation rates. But you've largely stuck to your guns and resisted calls to include additional metrics or screen high schools according to some other measures. Why? Well, the people who argue for the more complicated metrics, many of them are friends of mine, very respected uh, uh, analysts, and I see their point. But the problem is I'm a journalist. I'm not, a, I'm not a, an analyst. I want to write something that readers can understand and learn from. And it, it struck me as I argued with my friends who were on the other side that what they were asking me to do was to do what U.S. News does with its high school list or its college list. They produce a metric that's so complicated, nobody can understand it except experts. You have to trust U.S. News to be weighting the various factors that they pull in a way that makes sense. Whereas I was coming up with a very simple measure, just the portion of number of tests given at a school each year, AP, IB, or or Cambridge International tests, those college-level tests, how many of those tests are given each year? Divide that by the size of the senior class so a big school doesn't have an advantage over a small school, and report that ratio. And it shows, I've learned over time, the, the schools that encourage more kids to get into AP have higher ratios. They, they are rank higher on my list, and they've helped the schools that really care about how much kids learn, even average kids learn, uh, they, they, they're doing much better than a lot of schools in wealthy neighborhoods, which don't care <laughs> how much kids are learned. They just want to make sure their kid, are, each kid is filling the slot that they thought was uh, good for them. And so they don't put C students in AP. Um, they only put um, strong B and A students, whereas in the schools that I admire, C students, if they want to work hard, we're going to want to push themselves, they're in AP. That strikes me as a much more intelligent way of running a school. Now, along with your new excerpt in Education Next, we included the top 20 high schools from your 
original challenge index rankings back in 1998, as well as the latest top 20 based on data from 2019, I believe. I noticed that in 1998, not a single charter school made the list, but by 2020, charter schools accounted for 14 of the top 20 slots. And that really points us to the second major development you cover in the book, the emergence of a set of charter management organizations that are setting a new standard for excellence in serving high poverty communities. The names of the super charters you highlight, KIPP, Uncommon, IDEA, and BASIS, will be familiar to many of our listeners. What excites you about them? Well, I mean, it was interesting to me that it was a list in part that got me, that clued me into what some of the charters that were out there in, in the other part of America, nowhere near Washington, D.C. Or, or Cambridge or New York, were doing. Uh, they started to pop up on my challenge inject list. You know, I, the idea schools started in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. They were started by two 25-year-old Teach for America teachers who were brilliant. <laughs> you know, they had other ambitions once they saw how much they loved teaching. They, they went, just went with what made sense to them. And one of the things that made sense to them is to do what Jaime did, Jaime Escalante did, which was to actually, in their case, Jaime didn't require everyone to take AP, just trying to get as many kids as possible. They've created a, a charter network, which is now growing by leaps and bounds, that required every kid to take several AP courses. Uh, and that was remarkable. And the, as they popped up at the top of my list, uh, I said, well, I've got to know more about that um, network. And I've learned a lot more. They're really interesting. Uh, same with Uncommon. Uncommon, which is in North, Northeast, again, mostly low-income kids, has you know, perfected a, a method of teaching using timers and other uh, ways of making sure you're filling every minute with the most teaching possible. And they produce some of the highest scores you know, on AP tests, highest passing rates I'd seen for any network that was predominantly just low-income kids. And then the basis, people know about basis, which is a very unique and odd but interesting charter network, which is run, the only one I know it's run by a, a conservative Republicans, a married couple who, uh, the blocks who um, decided they wanted to start great charter schools in Arizona because they thought the Arizona public schools were not really challenging their six-year-old daughter, uh, sixth-grade daughter. Uh, and they uh, are the one network I've focused on that are that like profits. They, the charter schools are a nonprofit, but the management organization that uh, serves the charter schools is a for-profit institution. So they're they're very demanding, so demanding that very few low-income kids go to those schools. But I still think it's interesting to have a system like that that requires kids to take so many APs, and you can't graduate from from base from base unless you pass on them. And what do you think it is about the charter governance model that led to the emergence of this new type of high school at this point in time? I mean, it's the American story. Uh, our great scientific achievements begin with, you know, people in garages who are doing things that nobody's ever thought about, but makes sense to them. So they start small as, you know, the people who created Apple did in a garage. Um, and, um, and, 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 See what the, the, the KIPP founders, two young, very young teachers, the IDEA founders, two very young teachers, the Uncommon founders, not so young, more, more experienced guys, but they all said, 
you know, this charter thing is going to let us do things ways that make sense rather than to do whatever our school board or our superintendent tells us to do. And so they went in and did th- the, the, the key things they did was to have schools where the, there was significantly more time for learning. They added one or two hours onto the school day. In some cases, they added days to the school year. Uh, and then they put standards. They, they, they wanted to make sure kids learned with that extra time at the standard that would get them to the next grade, that would get them uh, passing the state tests and eventually get them ready and passing AP and IB exams. That, you know, and then and the, the, the key underlying that was they were very, 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 very careful about what kind of teachers they hired and how they trained them and extremely careful about who they made a principal, particularly the KIPP um, network, which is now the largest and, and really was the, the, um, the primogenitor for all that we've seen in the best of charters. Um, what they did was they had these two great um, Mike Feinberg and Dave Levin who were demonstrating, you know, they had started this thing and they were terrific school leaders, they said, well, we have to have a system that creates school leaders like us. So they created a training system for people, bright people they thought would be good principals. And then they watched them carefully. They uh, made sure that they uh, had the same values to get, get kids up, to give them more time and more encouragement, more challenge. But at the same time, uh, had, a, had learned how to train teachers in a way that would make them particularly effective in classrooms. So let's turn to the third and final reason for optimism you highlight, and that's the persistence of the progressive education tradition. You say that this can be found in at least some classrooms in almost every school nationwide. And as I highlight your enthusiasm for progressivism, I suspect that some listeners are likely to be scratching their heads. After all, the no excuses approach taken by many of the charters you were just praising is often seen as a reaction against the excesses of educational progressivism. How is it that you can be excited about both? Well, you're absolutely right. And I was biased against the whole progressive tradition because I had seen what it had done to education schools. Uh, there was Everybody was reading John Dewey and uh, talking about great projects and not really learning about classroom management and how to raise up low-income kids, which is I think terribly important. But as I thought, as I was thinking through the the book as I was writing it, and I'm thinking about other things that, you know, I'm optimistic about, it was clear to me since I've been in so many schools of all kinds that every school has some teacher who really gets kids excited. Often it's because they're using progressive um, methods such as uh, uh, student-led projects, Socratic reasoning, uh, things uh, talking, uh, taking whatever they're learning in history and science and applying it to things happening in their own lives. Uh, those are great teachers, and many many of them have the same kind of values that Jaime Escalante did, is about making sure that they're getting kids right to the top of the mark. But it made school fun, and as I thought about it, it occurred to me, uh, you know, I write a lot about charter schools. I'm very big on on the charter schools that I've talked about here, but that the fact remains that the vast majority of great teachers in our country do not work in charter schools. They work in regular schools. And I've seen these people, I've written about them and there's some stories about them in the book who, you know, because of our American tradition of letting teachers sort of do a lot of things the way they want to, once they close the classroom door, in their cases, 
it's produced a great benefit because they have projects and and other ideas that excite kids and get them um, eager to come to school. And I think it, it, I think you have to give John Dewey and and Diane Diane Ravitch, who's obviously a controversial figure, some credit for promoting this kind of teaching. I don't think Diane's right about charter schools being bad, but I think she's right about the 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 lift that that kind of teaching, imaginative teaching, progressive teaching gives to classes. So there you have it. That's Jay Matthews' case for optimism. And I'm wondering, Jay, as you look back on these three movements that give you hope, what lessons or advice would you have for the education reform community, those who are trying to find ways to improve America's schools and outcomes for American students? Well, I have, you know, radical views that probably don't, won't go very far, but I think we should ignore whatever the federal education department is doing. We should ignore what we're hearing in education school. We should ignore blue ribbon panels and we should look at schools and classrooms and find out where uh, uh, great teachers are having an impact on kids. We, we should look at charter systems that have had the kind of success that I write about in the book. And we should look at regular public systems uh, that are having success. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the schools in Houston, uh, uh, which is considered you know, one of the other big cities, those are really, that's a good system because it really does promote challenge. And they have, many of their schools have very high ratings on the challenge index. They require all schools to have good AP and IB courses. There are other districts like that scattered about the country. It's a cultural phenomenon to have schools like that. And it, and it's, it, it pops up in one place or another, depending on who the superintendents are, or if they have really smart people on the school boards. The Northern Virginia suburbs, really wealthy, but they're also very good because, you know, 20 years ago, they discovered they really wanted to push all of their kids, including the Lincoln ones. So if you look at schools that are working and take those lessons and apply them to your schools, you will be much better off than if, what you, if, if you do what the state standards tell you to do or the ed department tells you to do or the latest university report tells you to do. My guest today has been Jay Matthews, author of An Optimist's Guide to American Public Education. Jay, thanks for being part of the podcast. You're welcome, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.